want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the very last book in the Bible, Revelation. And I'm going to be reading a portion in just a moment from Revelation chapter 4. And so I want to encourage you to turn there. The title of this morning's message is The Purpose of True Worship. The Purpose of True Worship. This is the eighth and the final uh, message in a series of eight that we've done this summer, focusing on the lost disciplines of the American church, practices that I believe we have lost sight of their either their true meaning or we have lost sight of the, the exercise of these, these disciplines altogether. And you say, well, Pastor, it seems that worship is hotter than ever, and there, uh, there's more, there are more worship songs, more uh, worship music being produced, uh, more examples of worshiping churches than ever before. How can you say that that's a lost discipline? And uh, this morning, I'm going to answer that question uh, in this way. When I first came to Arkansas and began to travel uh, some 12 years ago now, I had the privilege of being in a lot of different kinds of churches. One of the first meetings that I was in was an old-fashioned sawdust tent revival up in um, Mammoth uh, Spring, Arkansas, and, um, and just outside of town on a hillside. And I would show up about 30 minutes or so beforehand because before the service would begin, there were, there were people... Uh, that would bring their, their hill instruments, dulcimers and uh, all these different uh, instruments I wasn't all that familiar with at the time, and they would begin to, to play worship music in the, in the style of that part of Arkansas. And I watched in some amazement because prior to that time, uh, for several years before that, my family and I had been in churches that worship, we would call it contemporary worship, but... Uh, it was a wholly different kind of experience, a totally different sound, <laughs> a totally different theme, totally different exercise. And when I walked in and I heard those instruments, what amazed me was not the songs that were being sung, but the people who were worshiping God at that moment. And I watched people who clearly were entering into their sense of the presence of God, and they were lifting their hands and they were closing their eyes, and they were singing to the Lord, and they were using this vehicle that was so different than any that I had known. And then, I think it was two weeks later, I was up in northwest Arkansas, brand new church plant, and they were doing uh, contemporary music, and I saw the same thing. I saw people entering into worship, lifting their hands to honor the Lord, to praise the Lord, closing their eyes and singing to Him. And I began to see something as I traveled year and year after year, uh, some 48 to 50 Sundays a year, uh, I found that as I went into church after church that, that I had to make a choice each week to worship. Psalm 150 is an incredible psalm. You don't need to turn there, but it's a wonderful psalm because it talks about praising the Lord in His sanctuary and enclosed space and also praising Him under the firmament, which is an open space. In other words, wherever you are, praising the Lord and then uh, praising Him for His mighty acts and praising Him for his goodness, praising him for what he does and praising him for who he is. And then it says to praise him with trumpet and lute and harp and timbrel, dance, stringed instruments, flutes, loud cymbals, not quiet ones, clashing cymbals. And the lesson I learned was you worship the Lord by choice and you, you take whatever 
you have. You take whatever you are given and you worship the Lord. Why? In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, this amazing experience happens to John and he's writing down what he sees and he has this opportunity to enter into the very throne room of heaven. And in verse 2 we read immediately, I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on that throne. Can't even imagine what he saw at that moment. He goes on and describes the one who sat on the throne. These four creatures who are just like the ones in Isaiah 6 who are, who are praising the Lord nonstop. And these 24 elders, there's a lot of discussion about who they are. We're not going to get into those details right now. I just want you to see what they're doing. They're worshiping the Lord. And then you come to verse 8 and just listen now. Revelation 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, holy, holy. And in the majority of Greek texts, that goes on six more times. There's at least nine holies there. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, day and night, Day and night. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created so why choose to worship with whatever you have because you and I were made for that and you and I desperately need to worship him we were not made to live apart from the presence of God. Most of us have no understanding of what it means, the fullness of what it means to be in the presence of God, the fullness, the life, the meaning, the healing that comes from being in the very presence of God. It, co it comes from only being with Him. And today, there are four things that you need to understand that He does when we worship Him. You see, He only dwells with worshiping people. You can't walk into the throne room and not hear and see worshiping people. And so when we worship, though, there's something that happens to you and me. And what is it? Well, when you worship him first, he will open your eyes. He will open your eyes. In verse 2, it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on that throne. The English word for worship comes from an old English word, that describes how someone responds before something or someone of superior value or superior worth. The, the word was worship. And our English worship has, is a short and firm of that old word, 
Just a shortened form. Worship is a short form for worship. When we see something of great value or worth, the way we respond is called worship. I want you to see what happens to somebody when they recognize the true worth of something. They didn't know it. They recognize the true worth of it. Watch this. A couple of weeks ago, I went into a barn and bought this crock and another one. And on my way home, I broke the other crock. But this one made it intact. And here I am at the road show today. Have you tried to do any research on Chapel at all? Uh, he had a general store in Kentucky. He lived to about 1880, 1890. That's all I know. And that squares very well with the age of this crock. I would have guessed this crock to be the last quarter of the 19th yeah. century, 1880-1890. This crock was made in western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania was one of the major production areas for this type of stencil crock. And the crock manufacturers would take orders from people who were retailers, and Mr. Chapel ordered this 10-gallon crock. If this had a name of a Pennsylvania crock maker on it, it's a ho-hum crock. It's made much more desirable by the fact that it has Cadiz, Kentucky on it. Cadiz is in western Kentucky. Okay. So this came down from Pennsylvania, down the Ohio, to the juncture of the Mississippi River and Ohio. There is a dimple here, an indentation. That's yeah. a manufacturing yeah. flaw. But really, that doesn't detract from this crock. It's the fact that it's a Kentucky retailer's crock, and that's the difference. To a Kentucky crock collector, that's everything. So a good auction value of this would be around $2,000. What? I'm not going to say, oh, wow, <laughs> but oh, wow. Wow, really? Yeah. So I saw that, and I brought one from the house. <laughs> this normally sits in the dining room. Uh, in the corner, and um, you know, we don't pay it a lot of mind, but it's there. It's been in the house for a long time, and I want you to uh, imagine for just a moment that I took that one to the Antiques Roadshow, and they looked at it. They got excited. They brought all their friends and neighbors over to look at it. Uh, the, uh, the appraiser could hardly contain himself or herself because they said, this crock is worth a million dollars, a million dollars. Now, what happens to me when I learn that my crock that's been sitting in the corner of the dining room is worth a million dollars? Do I put it back in the corner? No. <laughs> no. No, everything changes. Suddenly, this, this baby's going to be protected. I'm going to buy a very expensive case, bulletproof case, with a sophisticated alarm system, and uh, you trip the alarm, and some SWAT team descends immediately on you. And then as I'm talking to the, the guy some more, he says, you know, uh, this crock needs a little bit of work. It needs to be cleaned up. And so what you need to do, Mr. Busick, is you need to take this crock, and there's only one person in the whole world in Washington, D.C., that can take a crock like this and clean it up. And it's going to cost you about $10,000. Now, when it was just sitting in the corner of the dining room, and someone told me I needed to clean my crock for $10,000, 
I would have said, I just like it the way it is. You know, it can just stay right there. But now, knowing it's worth a million dollars, well, now that $10,000 doesn't sound like very much, does it? He said, if you'll get it cleaned and restored for $10,000, it'll double its value. Only in D.C. can they take a crock and double its value. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, suddenly, I'm going to get it cleaned, and I'm going to have a $2 million uh, crock. And, uh, and that investment then seems very small. Listen to what John hears in the throne room in chapter 4, verse 11. He, he says, he hears these people saying, you are worthy. You see, everyone standing there realizes this one on the throne, he is worthy. And what did they see? One well, verse 11, it says, you are worthy for you created all things. He's the creator. You know, we praise people who create magnificent things, don't we? Look at that play he just made. And we praise things because they created this play. They created this action. They created this moment. They created this art. They created this success, whatever it is. And when you, when you stand before the one on the throne, you realize that he made you. And he made everything that you know, everything that you see, that he gave you life. When that sinks in, the reality of that, his worth suddenly explodes in your mind in chapter 5 verse 9 it happens again they said you are worthy this time he says for you were slain he's not only the creator he's the redeemer he died for us he was killed for us he died to set us free from the devil from sin from the damage that it's caused in your life and when that sinks in his worth explodes. My life doesn't have to be one of darkness. My life doesn't have to be one of continual failure. The one on the throne, he was slain to set me free. Some of us only see worship in terms of what happens on Sunday morning at a particular hour. Once a week visit the church. And for us, worship is just the crock in the corner of our lives. It's just sort of over there, something that we do once in a while. But John enters the presence of the king, and everything changes for him. He sees an open door, and he knows that he's having access to something that he doesn't ordinarily have access to. And he receives this amazing invitation, and he goes in, and he sees a throne, and he sees the one who's on the throne, and he experiences and enters into a nonstop eternal worship that has never started and will never end. And he discovers that this is reality. Not the mundane day in and day out stuff, not my little troubles, not the problems I face. All of that shrinks in significance to worshiping him who is before us on the throne. Now we're not conscious of that. We're not because we're so earthbound. We're so tied to only what we see and what we sense, but yet there's a reality much greater, the unseen, and when the door opens and he says, come, you and I enter that door through worship. And that place, that division between the seen and the unseen gets so thin it evaporates. And you and I have the privilege of going into his presence. So what happens when you and I worship is that he's going to open our eyes 
to reality. He's going to help us to see some things that we have been missing, that we have not understood. But secondly, when you and I worship, he will transform your life. He will transform your life. In chapter 5, verse 9, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on earth. Here are these worshipers of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus. What difference does it make? I think the very first thing that happens is they have this new identity. You have redeemed us. You have set us free. We're not what we were without you. Now we are what we are because of you. And I've been changed. And then they have this new destiny. We're going to be made kings and priests. We're going to reign on the earth. I don't understand what that means. I have some idea. But we are becoming like him in that process. G.K. Beale is a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He wrote a book in 2008 entitled, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And it's based on this biblical principle, and this is him speaking. What you revere, you resemble. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. If you don't get God right, and you don't know who he really is, then you're going to be changed into the likeness of whatever you worship. But if you get it right, it makes all the difference in the world. In Psalm 115 Verses 4 to 8, the psalmist makes this point. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. What's the psalmist saying? He says you better get God right. Who you worship is what you're going to become. What you worship is what you become. So by trusting their made-up God, they have a mouth to praise God, but he doesn't hear anything. They have eyes that are made to see God, but they don't see God. They have ears that are made to hear God's voice, and they never hear God. And so on. But when we worship him, he changes us. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The same image means that you and I As we worship, true worship, I should be coming more and more like Jesus. You know, when I would travel, I'd hear people say, oh, we like hymns. That's how we worship. I'd go to other places and they'd say, oh, we like contemporary songs. That's how 
we worship. And then I watch in some churches where they'll start a service where they sing one song, kind of song, and they start another service, and they sing another kind of song, and then I watch them fight amongst themselves. Now, what's wrong with that picture? You know, you may sing like an angel. Everybody may say, oh, you sing like an angel, but if you're as mean as the devil, you don't worship the same Jesus I do. You don't. And so when you and I worship him, we become like him. We become more and more focused on him, and then as we look to him, there's a transformation that takes place. More loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more forgiving, quicker with words of grace, quicker to forgive, quicker to offer mercy, like Jesus. So when you worship him, first he's going to open your eyes, second he's going to transform your life, and then thirdly, he will enable you to overcome fear. He will enable you to overcome fear. Wouldn't that be good? I tell you what, there's nothing that changes you on the subject of fear and anxiety like worship. In chapter 5, verse 13, it says, In every creature, how many creatures is that? Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Every creature, every living thing in the universe will one day worship the king. And I'll get to see that. And those of you that know him, you're going to see that. And those of you that don't know him are going to have one of the great surprises of your life. The Apostle Paul said that one day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. How many knees is that? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There was an Old Testament king, Jehoshaphat. He understood that. He was being accosted. The nation of Israel was being attacked by the people of Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir, and they were coming against him. It was a mighty, overwhelming military force, and he had absolutely no capacity to, to withstand that force. And so he prays this amazing prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 20, and you can go back and read it later today, but he prays this amazing prayer, and, and he just takes everything. What a model. He takes everything, and he lays it at God's feet. And he says this in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. This is, this is a great prayer to remember. For we have no power. We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor would, do we know what to do. Have you ever been there? No, no, neither do we know what to do. But our eyes, where are they? Are they on the problem? Are they on the thing that's causing fear? No, but our eyes are upon you. What a lesson. And then in verse 17, um, we read how God answered the prayer. And, and this is not on the screen, but just listen. God speaks. He says, you will not need to fight in this battle. <laughs> he says, position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow... Go out against them, for the Lord is with you. So what did Jehoshaphat do when he heard God say that? Listen. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground 
And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So what happened then? What happened next? They're worshiping him. Their eyes are on him. In verse 22 in Chronicles, it says, Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah, and they were defeated. What did the people do? They sang. They kept their eyes on him. They sang. (laughs) They sang. They praised him. So when you're afraid, praise him. When you're overwhelmed by anxiety and fear, praise him. When your bills are piling up and you don't know how you're going to get out of this one, praise him. When the doctor gives you that terrifying diagnosis, praise him. When someone is determined to harm you, praise the Lord. When the enemy is trying to beat you down and intimidate you and keep you from doing what you know what God has called you to do, praise the Lord. When disaster comes, praise him. When the final breath is near and you know your time is coming, praise him. Praise him. This is no cheap self-help technique. When you and I do this, the whole situation changes. When you and I praise him, he's going to deliver you. He's going to deliver you from that fear. He's going to deliver you from that anxiety. You're not going to have to worry about death. You're not going to have to worry about the outcome. You may not survive, but you will survive. Your life may not go on, but your life will go on. And every enemy that was arrayed against you, all the enemies of your soul, will be crushed by the one who sits on the throne. God will act and bring you to a place of safety. Listen to David in Psalm 32, verse 7. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with what? Songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance. That only happens when deliverance happens. So when you worship him, he's going to open your eyes, transform your life. He's going to enable you to put down fear in your life. And then fourthly, he will lead you to ever-increasing levels of surrender. This is what should happen on Sundays when you and I worship together. We should come into this place and we're at a certain level of surrender to God. But after we've been here, after we've worshiped the Lord, after we've sung praises to him, there should be a greater surrender to the Lord than when I came in the doors. When you're at home and you worship him, you go into that prayer time, that praise time with a certain level of surrender, giving things to God. But when you come out of it, you should have put everything at his feet. Greater surrender, more surrender, yielding more and more to him. Listen to chapter 4, verse 10. And the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And watch this. And cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord. The elders fell down. This is the most common reaction to the presence of God in the Bible. People can't stay on their feet. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, the people on Mount Carmel, all of Israel when God's glory filled the temple. King Jehoshaphat we just read about. Peter, Paul on the Damascus Road. No one can stand on their feet when God's glory comes. No one. And then notice what they did next. 
Not only did they fall down, but John says they reached up and they grabbed that crown. And um, at a minimum, that crown represents their, the extent of their right to use their will, the sphere of their ability to rule their own lives, the, the extent of their power. Whatever they are worth, it represents all of that. What do they do? They reach up and grab that and they throw it at God's feet. This is why David, perhaps the greatest worshiper of God in the Old Testament, he said in Psalm 115, verse 1, same psalm we read earlier, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your mercy, because of your truth. David understood who he was, his mercy, his truth. Um, He understood that that needs to be magnified. Not me, not my crown, not my kingdom, but he needs to be magnified. Oh God, you are the one people need to know. Not me, you. Paul understood this too. He spends 11 chapters in Romans describing to them what God has done, what God has accomplished in salvation. And in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Give your body to God, he says. When you give your body, what goes with that? Everything. Doesn't it? Everything. Hands, feet, mind, memory, dreams, all that I am if I give my body to God. And then he says, present it as a living sacrifice. He said, go up on that altar where things die, when they're offered to God, where things are burned, and then, and then the, that, that smoke it ascends to heaven. He said, climb up on that altar. He said, go there and become a living sacrifice, not one that dies but one that's on that altar and always being consumed for him. Always. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're on the altar. Always being consumed to him, always offering yourself to him, always being that fragrant offering that's described so much in the Old Testament. But it becomes that in your own life. Live like that, like an offering that's on fire. Live that way for him. This is your calling. This is real worship. This is not singing a song. This is worship. This is where he wants to take you and me whenever we come before him. And when you and I worship him, that's what's going to happen to you and me. And this kind of worship takes place when there's a decision. He says, present your bodies. That's a choice. That's something you have to do. You have to come to the Lord and say, here I am. You say, well, Don, I don't feel worthy to present myself to the Lord. Look, it's not dependent on your worth. Remember that? You are worthy because you were slain. It's about him. It's about what he did for you and me. It's not about your worth. It's about his worth. And you come to him, and you present yourself to him. And as you begin to recognize who he is, I can't even stand before that throne. No one can stand. I can't keep anything from him. A life with him, nothing else matters. Take it, Lord. You say, take my crown, take all of it. And this is why you and I must worship. There's a joy that is yours that can only come from him. There's an awe 
that's yours, that only comes when we're before him. There's a surrender that's going to come when you worship him. Have you given yourself to him this way? Are you a living sacrifice? Have you come to a place in your life where you're throwing everything at his feet? Say, I'm done. (laughs) I'm through. I'm not going to run my life anymore. You know, when a person first comes to Christ, that's what's supposed to happen. We come to a place of complete, total surrender. Say, Lord, by myself, all I can do is mess up my life. I've sinned. I've offended you. I've destroyed myself. I've destroyed my life. I've hurt all kinds of people around me. And we come to the Lord with nothing in our hands. We say, here I am. And he says, I've been waiting for you. And the moment you trust Jesus Christ, who is your Savior and Lord, who died for you on the cross, he was killed for you, he shed his blood for you, and now he sits on the throne. The moment you come to him, you say, I'm putting my trust in you to rescue me, to be my redeemer. You made me. Now I'm asking you to set me free. I'm asking you to change me. And you come and you trust him. He will deliver you. Many of us have that testimony. And then believer, child of God, what happened? Where is your heart today? Are you a living sacrifice? Is worship making you sweeter? Or is your heart growing harder? You worship a God that's not alive, your heart's going to grow hard. When you worship the living God, your heart grows tender. Changes you. Profoundly changes you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And pray with me. And then we're going to have a time of response. And I'm going to invite you to come. If you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you just need to pray at the altar, however he leads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this awesome vision of reality. And I'm sure that John felt his words were inadequate as he tried to put down on paper what he saw. But you led him to write down exactly what we needed to hear today. We praise you for that. Father, for that man or woman, boy or girl, who needs to come and trust Christ today and be saved and be changed. Father, we pray your spirit would encourage them, draw them, convince them of the truth. For that brother or sister who realizes that they have put their eyes on everything in this world, but they've not yet set their eyes on you. Would you take them, Lord, to that new place? with you may they see your worth and see that nothing in the world can compare to your beauty and what you are offering lead us all to set our eyes on you for the rest of our lives we pray in Jesus name